On the Thursday night before this Good Friday that we're observing together, on the Thursday night, Jesus convened his disciples and, and they ate a final celebratory type meal together. And at the conclusion of that meal, he took some of the elements and he made a whole new meaning to those elements, to the bread, to the cup. And as he was explaining to them the meaning of this, this bread, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then when he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And he asked that we would drink this cup in remembrance of him until he returns. Now, I believe that when he's asking us to remember, when he's asking us to, to honor, to join with him, he's not just saying, remember that I died. He's asking that you remember what he accomplished through his death and how it applies to you and how it is not just this nice religious thing that we're doing because it's Easter time or because it's Passion Week, but because what Jesus accomplished in his death is so amazing and so impactful to anyone who will receive it. The one that I want us to focus on is one of the apostles who wrote about his death and what it accomplished, but it's pretty fascinating or pretty amazing that he writes about it because Thursday night was not the best night of his life. The apostle Peter really didn't do a single thing right that night. And if you think about it, Jesus asked him to pray with him, he fell asleep. Not that you have never done that, I guess. But <laughs> when it was time for Jesus to be betrayed, Peter thought, I'll take on the entire army and whipped out his sword. All he did was cut off the ear of a servant, not one of the soldiers. And Jesus had to miraculously put it back on. When they came to him three times and they said to Peter, do you know this man? Aren't you one of his disciples? By the third time, he swore an oath and the oath was this, if I am lying, may heaven kill me now. I do not know this man. And yet, he was so transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the giving of the Holy Spirit, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he was so transformed that his record that we're going to read tonight is not only the true record of what Jesus accomplished in his death, but it's also very personal and very intimate. Let's read it together. It's here. I like it when you read out loud God's word with me. So let's read from 1 Peter chapter 2, and then we'll jump over to 1 Peter chapter 3. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Hmm. I grew up with a saying, may God bless to our hearing and to our application his holy word. Doesn't that make sense for this passage? So, as we look at this passage and what he accomplished in his death, I wanted to talk to you about it in three ways. The first is that there's a legal nature to his death that's unlike any other death that's ever been. The second is that there's a finality. There is something that is accomplished for all time in his death. And then the third thing is it's a voluntary death. It's a death he chose to die. So I'm going to start with the legality or the legal nature of Christ's death. There is in the scriptures a phrase that many people pass over and don't get or don't notice in a sense. But when in talking about the death of Jesus, the description of the Bible is this. God justifies the ungodly. This is pretty amazing because if you're a religious person, you would hate to be called the ungodly. If you're an irreligious person, you would also bristle if I call you ungodly. And yet, what Jesus' death says is that the only ones who actually take any of the benefits and begin to apply it to their lives are those who begin to recognize that they have no goodness in and of themselves. That as long as you continue to maintain that you're a pretty good person, that you're not as bad as somebody else or whatever, then Jesus' death means nothing to you. So you could pray, you could go to church, you could do all kinds of things, but it's when you realize you are ungodly and you have no right whatsoever to be near to God. It's when you recognize that, then his death becomes everything to you. Because you recognize there's no way to atone for all my sins in my past. Whether the sins that I committed or the things I've omitted to do, either way they condemn me. And so God chooses in Christ to bring us into relationship with Him in a way that gives us a right standing, a permanent right standing with Him, but it only happens through the blood and through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. On that, on that huge day, that Friday, I don't know about any of the rest of you, but when I was a kid, I was like, why do we call this Good Friday? It seems like Bad Friday. But it's good when you know what it means. Because what good has been accomplished in this central day of history has never been accomplished by anybody else before or since. There was a transfer. There was an exchange that took place. And this is the essence of that exchange. God treated someone who was righteous as if he were unrighteous. Come on, that's, you got to get that. God treated someone who was righteous as if he was unrighteous. Well, what does that mean? We don't use righteous all that often. But righteous simply means in the Bible that you have a right standing before the law. Or unrighteous means you do not have a right standing before the law. Let's, let's, let's unpack this a bit. In other words, if somebody goes in and looks at your record, they won't even find a parking ticket. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can't go to Nyack without getting a parking ticket. I have, I have had $50 cups of coffee in Nyack. Someone borrowed my car. A family member went into the city. I found that I had $500 worth of parking violations in, that were made in two weeks. And they were chasing me. I escaped to New Jersey. But uh, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Even in the simplest of things, when they look closely enough, they will see warrants for your arrest. They will see judgments against you. They will see liens against you. And yet here is Jesus Christ, the one true, holy, righteous one. No thing could be found against him. Even in his trial, they had to pay people to lie about him. They had to find false witnesses who would come against him because they had no one who could disparage his character. They had no one who could point out a sin without lying about who he was and what he did. So here is the one righteous one, the only one who can stand before the Father in complete righteousness, but he stood before the Father as unrighteous on your behalf. Because all the warrants against you, all the tickets against you, all of the liens against you, all the judgments in your record were transferred to his record so that the just became the unjust. He legally, he legally became sin so that though he was actually righteous, we who are actually sinful might legally become righteous. Isn't that an awesome thing when you realize it? I mean, it, it just blows me away because I spent a good bit of my early life thinking as a Christian, I had, to, I had to prove, I had to gain the approval of God. And by trying to keep all of the, the different uh, obedience, all the different rules, all the different precepts, and all of these things, only to become a person who hid his true character. Because I didn't want anybody to criticize. I didn't want anybody to know how much of a fraud I was. And when I began to realize this great truth, that I didn't have to hide anymore because Jesus himself had become sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. Legally, he became sin. He who is righteous. So that now legally... I who am sinful, I have become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is legally what he accomplished through his death. No one else could do that for you. Other people could die for you and it would be, it would be a heroic thing, it would be a noble thing, but they could not make the exchange for your sins to be carried by them. The only one who can carry your sins is the one who himself was not sinful. And so Peter says that he bore our sins so that you and I might be set free from the judgment, from the wrath to come, and that we who are ungodly are justified by God through Jesus. The second thing is there's this finality of Christ's death. And this is where sometimes different groups who call themselves Christians have very, very... Um, Important distinctions. 
You see, the, the issue that we have is twofold, okay? One is there's a, there is what is called the efficient cause of our justification or our salvation or our coming into the right standing with God so that we have peace with God and we're able to come before Him with our whole hearts just laid bare before Him because we're not afraid anymore. So there's, a, there's an efficient cause of that, but there's also, the Bible says, a means by which you receive that salvation. So a way of looking at this is that when a sculpture is made, there are always two causes of the sculpture. For one, there has to be the the talent, there has to be the imagination, there has to be the vision of a sculptor. So he, it, it's that sculptor who is the main cause of the product. But no sculptor can ever create a beautiful sculpture without tools. And so the tools are a cause, but they're not, they're, they're the means by which the sculpture comes into being. They are the means for it. They're not, they're not the reason. You see, without the sculptor, there would be no sculpture because the tools cannot do it by themselves. They are mere means. And what happens is anyone who's a Christian agrees that the sculptor of our salvation is Jesus Christ. Everybody who is a Christian, if you're within the realm of Christianity, you have to be able to, to understand and say that the death of Jesus is the cause of our ability to come close to God and be intimate with God and, and not fear death anymore. But what, where people get confused is they start to think, yeah, but the instruments by which I'm accepted in that salvation, the instruments or the tools by which I get approval and acceptance from God, that's where people start to disagree. Some people say you have to be baptized in certain churches. Some people say you have to have certain sacraments that you take or else you're not acceptable. You see, this is where we tonight and where Peter tonight disagrees with any other means. The only means by which you come into right standing with the death of Jesus which leads you into the life of God is by faith alone. It is faith in God alone. The only obedience that you actually, my friend, that you actually can do that is life transforming and changes everything is the obedience of faith. When you begin to realize, hey, no amount of taking grape juice or wine or eating crackers, those sometimes nasty tasting things, and, and, and no amount of, of having somebody pray over you or do all these, none of those things are what make you acceptable to God. What makes you acceptable is when you realize that the Father who gave His Son for you is worthy to be trusted. When the Father who gave His Son for you has said, you can't come to me except through my Son, and you begin to realize that's the only way I can be right with God. When you acknowledge what Jesus has accomplished in His death 
for you, not just historically, not just religiously, but you begin to say, He died for me. That's the finality of the death of Christ. Would you say that with me? He died for me. Come on, put a stake in the ground tonight. He died for me. So do you, do, do you believe it? Well, Jesus says it's finished. I mean, he had the presence of mind on the cross to say the debt is paid. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to be nice right now, okay? But if he has marked paid in full on every page of your life, who are you then to say, yeah, but I got to do this? And I got to do... No, Jesus marked paid in full. I mean, who, who else's marks matter? Who else's word over you matters? Not, not some religious leader, not some religious tradition. The only thing that matters is, is the one who's dying on the cross for you saying paid in full? And if he says paid in full, then you can take it all the way to heaven. So here's what the Apostle John, who was also with Jesus on that Thursday night, he says that when you come to understand that the only thing God is asking of you is faith in that finished work of the sculptor of your salvation, he says then you no longer have a condemned heart. And you can stand up to it's the end of your own heart condemning you. For there is therefore now no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if I'm acceptable to God, no other voice matters. If I am approved by God because of the death of Christ and it's finished and it's for all time that one death, then I don't have to beat myself in order to punish myself in some way when he himself has already borne the punishment that was due me. Can I say this to you as well? You do not ever have to re-crucify Christ. There are some people who have so much guilt and shame and don't realize that when you take it to the cross, it's, it vanishes. It is gone as far as the east is from the west. It is never held against you again. So when you start saying, well, I, I, I need to beat myself, I need to... I need to be angry with myself. I need to do all of this. All you're doing is defeating the purpose of the true atonement and you're falling for the deception of a false atonement. See, there are many of us that are still trying to finish something that only Jesus can finish. Well, the third of these, are you tracking with me so far? The third of these is the voluntary nature of his sacrifice. Can I say this all the time because I think it's the heart of the gospel, and that is this. You are so sinful that Christ had to die for you. But you are so loved that Christ chose to die for you. What many of us don't understand is nobody at that cross could put Jesus to death. There wasn't a Roman soldier, even though the Roman, the Roman soldiers were killing machines. They knew how to execute people. They were professionals. Not a single one of them could have taken Jesus' life. There wasn't a Jewish religious leader who could take Jesus' life. Not even Pilate could take Jesus' life. Why do I say that? It's because Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. 
I lay it down. Do you understand how powerful that is? That means the only reason he went up there was you. And the only reason he stayed up there was you. The nails couldn't keep him there. The soldiers couldn't keep him there. It was his love for you that keeps him there. There's a story that I heard this week that has impacted me. Uh, It's a very old story. I don't know how historically accurate it is, but it's a great story. There was a Russian czar who had a close friend, and the close friend was dying, and uh, he asked, will you take care of my son? And so the mother had already died, so as his friend dies, the czar begins to care for and become the guardian of this son. But the son uh, becomes a, a wastrel, becomes a person that cannot be trusted. He goes into the army and and does very poorly. He becomes the treasurer of his company and he steals from his company in order to pay his gambling debts and other debts. So the night comes where he knows he's about to be found out. And uh, he decides he's going to take his own life. So he gets the pistol. He has it right by the books where all the embezzlement is seen. But he knows he can't shoot himself without some liquid courage. So he begins to drink, but the problem is he drinks too much and he falls asleep. (laughs) So while he's sleeping, the czar finds out about his plight. And the czar comes in quietly, and over every page of the book where the embezzlement is, he puts his seal and he puts his word, and he says, I, the czar, am responsible for all the debts of this man. When he wakes up in the morning and he sees that one, he's not dead, but then he sees the seal of the czar and he recognizes, I'm not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. But because of the relationship and because of the love, the debts were paid and he was free. What Peter says is even more than that's been done for you. But he says that there's a purpose to this. And he says, so that you might be dead to sins. That you might be dead to sins and that you might begin to live a life of righteousness. You see, your king, your Lord, loves you so much that while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. And he lives for you right now in such a way that he longs for you to realize that those sins that beset you, those sins that attract you, those sins that are so appealing to you will never quite lose their appeal until you have a new affection that is greater than your old affection. There is a thing called the expulsive power of a new affection. And it is when you realize someone loves me so much, knowing my debt, knowing my ungodliness, knowing all my past, and yet even in a drunken state, he he takes my debts as his own because of his great love for me. Jesus is the only person that has ever existed that did not have to die 
there are people that you know, can say, okay, I'm going to be executed, I know the day of my death, or whatever it might be, but all of us have a, have a day waiting for us. Only Jesus had no expiration date. Because there was no sin in him, there was no death in him. So he willingly said, I don't have anyone who can take my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. I invite you tonight, let the death of Jesus come in and change your heart. Let his love express legally. <laughs> I don't know how many of you wrestle with temptation and accusation in your head, but I meet people all the time that have a running battle saying, I'm not, I'm not good enough, I'm not, I'm not worthy enough, and all these things, and they're not listening to the only voice that really matters, and it's the voice that paid your debt. It's the voice that said, it is finished. And see, if you're accepted by him, that's all that matters. And so I invite you to stand with me right now. What we're going to do is we're going to take this thought, this sense of the love of Christ, the sense of the power of Christ to exchange the unrighteousness of the most unrighteous person in this room and to become then the righteousness of God. I mean, one of the ways I like thinking about it is this. He received what I deserved so that now I receive what he deserves. That's the gospel. It isn't any if, ands, or buts. It isn't, okay, you receive it and you have to do this. You receive it and you got to go there, do this. No. Anything that he asks you to do is not you performing for his approval. It's you beginning to act out of his approval. And so he said, what I would really like you to do is I'd like you to take this bread, which he said was his body broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not such a great task that we come and we do this together. But it is a great privilege to be able to remember. And not just to remember that he died, but to remember what he accomplished through his death. And then he says, this cup is a new covenant. I mean, if you ever think about how important a covenant is, it means a promise that cannot be broken. This is the new covenant in my blood. He was so serious about having a covenantal intimacy and relationship with you that could not be broken. He was so serious about that that he cut a covenant with you in his own blood. He showed you how significant you are and how he wanted nothing to come between you and him. So he said, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And when we come tonight... We come as those who say, Lord, you have set me free, not just from the power of sin, but from the sins of my life. I love that Peter isn't talking about just the sense of sin as a power, but he's talking about specific areas of addiction, specific areas of vulnerability and temptation and all these things. He says he did this so that you would have something that would so capture your heart that these other lesser things will no longer be master over you and you who 
who maybe never had the thought that you could be righteous actually come to a place where you begin to say, as Jesus wants you to say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. What an awesome identity. Would you practice that with me for a second? I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, if you don't see how miraculous that is, that He would make you the righteousness of God in Christ, just go ask your friends how ridiculous that sounds. That that is only by faith and it is only through the exchange that legally I become righteous because legally He became sinful. What a Savior. So here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to pray over the elements. I'm going to ask those that are going to help me. Come, please. And uh, I need some cup holders here. I need some bread holders. So tonight, we don't always do this, but on Good Friday, I always like to have challah bread. Or challah bread. I did that while the napkins were still up, you know. So let's, let's remove the napkins. It's so beautiful, right? I know it should be unleavened bread, but I just tonight like beautiful bread. Okay, I, I get that. We changed from wine to grape juice. We can change from unleavened to leaven tonight. So, so I'm going to ask uh, my helpers here, one, to t- go ahead and take the... What we're going to ask you to do is first you're going to take the bread. You're just going to pull off a piece. I've seen some of you pull off the entire half of the bread. <laughs> So maybe we need to break it up a little for them. But we're going to do it in a little different way. It's going to make a bit of a mess. But you're going to dip the bread in the cup. There's just something. I, every now and then, we don't always do it this way, but you're going to dip the bread in the cup and you're going you're to just take it very quickly right here. So there's a lot of us here. It's going to take us a little while. So we're going to ask you to go around that way, come down this way, exit that way. Oh, and we are, we are so modern here. We have gluten-free crackers for those of you who can't have the, the olive bread. Okay, so. And they look delicious. So uh, just in case there. Okay. So would you do this? Would you take both your hands and would you just lift them up to the Father? I know it might be new for some of you, but I'm just, I believe that the Father loves it when we do what Jesus asked. And uh, so, Father, we're coming tonight as children. We're coming as co-heirs with Jesus. We're believing you tonight that uh, an exchange has been made. Jesus said himself, this is my body broken for you. That's an exchange. This blood is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. That's an exchange. So Lord, we are people who love to taste. We like to touch. We like to see. And so tonight we get to taste, touch, and see as we dip the bread. We consecrate this bread. We consecrate this cup in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ for this holy purpose that the grace of God will be stirred up in our lives. I invite all of you to the table if you love the Lord Jesus. I invite you to the table if you're seeking the Lord Jesus. Uh, Both elements are for you. 
Uh, I invite you to come now. Just come around from that side. Come this way. Go exit out the, the middle. Come on and receive right now. And we'll worship with a song as this is happening. Um, Speaks a better word. Jesus sets your blood. Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me. Stands in my defense. Jesus is your blood.
Stand together as we close. Would you, would you close your eyes with me and just, I know this may seem strange, but I feel like positioning is a prophetic type thing where the Spirit helps us to understand what He's doing. So I'd like you to take your right hand and just place it over your heart. Your heart is the control center of your being. It's not just your emotions, but... It's your deepest commitments. It's the things you trust the most. It's, it's the place where, in a sense, you have a vault of truth. Where what you believe, what you know that you know is in your heart. What I'd like to ask you to do tonight is, is to renew if it's something you've always had. Or to open the vault and to put it in afresh. An exchange has been made. If you're willing, you can declare this exchange. I'm going to help you do it, guide you through it. But it says, by his stripes you are healed. So what I want you to do is I want you to put these benefits of his death into the vault, into the control center, into the heart of your life. Would you say this? I exchange my unrighteousness for his righteousness. I exchange my brokenness, my broken body, even my sicknesses, for His glorified body, for His victory, for His healing. I declare over my own body, by His stripes, I am healed. Let that sink in. Let's go after one more thing with that. He said that he did this so that the power of sins is broken. You know the things where you're vulnerable. The things where you've been attached. Would you say this with me? I receive tonight tonight. his power power. over over the sins in my life. 
I declare over them, it is finished, the debt is paid, I have a new affection, and I expose, and I expel these old affections for the sake of Christ Jesus, who died for me. Lord, we seal what you're doing now. In Jesus' name, amen.